you wanted more live Nerdist Writers panels. You've got more live Nerdist Writers panels. We've got a bunch coming up in September and October and in August. Uh, here they are, Los Angeles, August 23rd at Meltdown with Mark Guggenheim, the co-creator of Arrow and the upcoming Legends of Tomorrow, as well as a comic book writer, and he's done a ton of cool stuff. Corinne Marshall, the creator of Casey Undercover and a uh, great sitcom writer. Evan Blyweiss, who has written on... He started out on The Shield, um, uh, and he's done a bunch of other cool shows. Laura Valdivia, who currently write, wrote on Weird Loners, and she wrote on Ben and Kate, and uh, is very funny. Of course, it benefits 826LA. That's August 23rd. Also in Los Angeles, September 13th at Meltdown, our old pal Damon Lindelof is back, the co-creator of Lost and the showrunner of The Leftovers. We'll talk about that show and anything you want to talk about. We've also got Andrew Kreisberg, the co-creator of Supergirl, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow. Um, great guy. Uh, Noel Valdivia, uh, the sister of Laura, who writes dramas. She's currently on Manhattan and wrote for Masters of Sex. And finally, Kit Boss, who's written for Bob's Burgers. Uh, he's on iZombie now. Really good guy. That's September 13th at Meltdown. August 31st, let's back it up. August 31st at Brookline Booksmith, I'm talking with Joe Hill, author, short story writer, comic book writer, raconteur, hilarious dude, scary dude, maybe. Let's find out. Benefits 826 Boston. That's on August 31st, my old hometown. And then finally, this big one, September 21st at Largo at the Coronet, uh, we're doing an evening of the masters of the family sitcom. We've got Norman Lear, the creator of All in the Family, the Jeffersons, a million shows. Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, and Steve Levitan, the co-creator of Modern Family. It should be a terrific conversation with these three guys. All three are funny, charming, have lots to say, have been in the business for years. Uh, you don't want to miss that. That's September 21st at Largo. But Ben, where do I get tickets for these things and how do I support 826LA and 826Boston? I'll tell you. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. I started a Tumblr so you can find out about all of this stuff. writerspanel.tumblr.com. Follow it, and you'll find out about this. And we're adding, there are going to be two more live panels uh, in, that will come up for sale in the next couple of weeks. So come check it out. Please come to these panels. Uh, I always enjoy doing them. I enjoy meeting all of you who listen to the show. And uh, we want you there to ask questions. That's what I miss having done all of these studio panels is you guys asking great questions of uh, the creators. So come on out, writerspanel.tumblr.com. Or, and follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, uh, for details there. Hope to see you soon. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at the ATX Television Festival in Austin. Uh, season 4, which was this year, first weekend in June 2015. We had so much fun at ATX this year. It was bigger and better than it ever was. I don't know why you're not coming next year. Go to ATX festival.com and get your badge for next year. Don't wait to find out who's going to be there, because if you wait to find out who's going to be there, you're going to miss an opportunity to get your badge. Go to atxfestival.com. I'm the TV news editor at The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm here today because, like you, I'm fascinated by the world of TV development. Uh, before shows like Friday Night Lights and Girls and Outlander became hits, they went through a long process to get to the screen that often started with a pitch and a buyer who saw a hit show in the making. Um, today we're going to discuss a long range of, con of, uh, of different subjects um, about competition from digital and cable, how that's changing the game, and more. We're here today with HBO director of original series Kathleen McCaffrey, Hi. Fox VP animation Grant Gish, 
Stars Senior VP Original Programming, Ken Segna, and NBC Director of Comedy Development, David Slevin. Let's start with a fun one. Uh, what are some of your most memorable pitches, and why do they stand out? I can't make eye contact. So you should start. <laughs> anyway, we were we what? just had a coffee and we we're talking about this. So you know, one, one of them one. one of them was a. Uh, we'll let you start it. This one's. I think it was a good pitch. It was actually a good pitch. I don't want to take any credit away from you because you guys uh, developed, bought, and developed it. But there was a time where. Uh, Matthew McConaughey came in and decided to pitch. Quick interruption. David used to work, before he was in he used to work at the Fox Network. Yes. And I work at 20th Century Fox, the studio side. So we were bringing a pitch into his network. So cut to the story. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, Matthew McConaughey and his brother, Rooster, Rooster McConaughey, were coming. My, I feel like if any room knows all that, it's you guys. <laughs> but uh, he came in pitching an animated show based on Rooster's life because he is an eccentric character. And he decided to come in with Rooster and a case, or two cases of Miller Lite. <laughs> First, to illustrate that Rooster's son is really named Miller Lite, I think. It's like Miller Lite McConaughey. Miller Lite McConaughey. So awesome. And, uh, and then proceeded... Trademarked. Yeah, proceeded to pass out beers to everybody in the pitch um, and refill in the middle of the pitch as it was going on. So I've been drinking during pitches, and I've had a beer in the same room as Matthew McConaughey, who would... So bring liquor to your pitch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always work, but the picture's actually good. I mean, it's, it's hard to fake a real-life story. You know, the comedy is just inherent. And, you know, Rooster and his whole story out in Midland and uh, his family, it was just... It reeked of comedy and animation, so it was a no-brainer. It made sense. Mm -hmm. it, it, I will say this, because... It's not as if bringing you know, stuff to pitches works all the time, but like Grant was saying, he was the kind of guy who would go to a business meeting for all intents and purposes and bring beer and think it was the right thing to do, and his character was all for it, so it kind of fit in with the pitch. Most of our notes calls on that project that we eventually got into, I think Rooster was either at a bar or uh, a Mexican restaurant where he just drank margaritas in Midland. Yeah. Made it fun. So good. Um, I've also heard... Uh, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that Jason Kadams, who obviously did Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, one of some of my favorites, cries during pitches. Um, Jason Kadams can do whatever he wants yes. in any pitch ever. I hope that that's true. Yeah, me too. Can you imagine? Uh, I would cry well, along with him. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch him read the phone book. Um, what would you say is the biggest mistake people often make when they're in, in the pitch process? When they're in the room. I mean, I'll speak just for what we're looking for. I mean, one thing that, I, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but one thing that just doesn't work for us is, you know, people often come in and they'll have, you know, they'll pitch out, here's a really interesting world, here's an interesting uh, character in that world, and, you know, and then they'll say some version of, you know, and then we can go anywhere, we could do 100 episodes of whatever. And um, I think that works if you're doing... You know, procedural shows, certainly, um, but since that's not what we're doing, usually I like to know, you know, that there's something specific that you've got to say, whether it's a theme or an arc, you know, not that you're going to know exactly, you know, what the cliffhanger in season four is going to be, because a lot's going to change between now and then, but, uh, yeah, certainly that you got that kind of guiding principle and theme to what, what you're trying to say with your story. I only want to piggyback on that just because, in the same sense for comedy, it's it's fine to be flexible with your pitches. We're not asking, but for comedy, a lot of times we ask, "Are you looking? Are you thinking single cam or multi cam, or where does it live most of the time?" And a lot of times, people, you know, they want to sell and they think we're asking for them to be flexible and saying, "Oh, it could be either single or multi." And for us, it's a little bit of a red flag because if you don't have it in your head already, it doesn't mean we can't or ask you to change it later. Or there's not a world in which it works both ways. But we like people to come in and know kind of where their head is at to begin with. I think all of us can probably agree too that. There is such a thing as being too well rehearsed. Uh, there's nothing yeah. as off-putting as when folks come in to pitch and they either have like a song and dance routine or they're basically doing a stage play in front of you where they stand up and you're left sort of like this. It's just you sort of forget what they're saying because you're so focused on the routine and the sort of, um, you know, the gimmick of it all. So no. just straightforward, you know, uh, get to the point, get to the characters. I think that works best. I think so, too. I think, you know, for I, I'm a drama executive, though. I cover girls and developed girls, but and that's, which is a half hour, but I'm a drama executive. And for me, sort of a combination of what these guys are saying, when you beat out the pilot beat for beat, that sort of doesn't work either. Like, I think the best thing for for maybe all of us is when you come in and you, you know the story so well, you're burning to tell it. Those are the When you can, like, put your stuff, put all the materials down and just tell a story and really want to tell the story and ask a question that you're going to explore over the course of the series, like, really just if 
we can tell if you don't feel it. We can tell if it's been put together and sort of like overdone or whatever. Like just if you just tell your story, mm. just tell your story and like look at us and you know that's how we feel most engaged. Just like when you're beating out pitch, like we can we're development executives. We can work on the pilot. We can work on the beats of the plot. Mm. We can figure that out. Like just you, if you have a question or something personal that you really want to say with your show, that's where you that's where the pitch should live. But, but I will say this, though, because we get this question all the time is, and, and I think it depends with the executive, but a lot of times, I mean, you guys are performing a little bit during the pitch, and a lot of people ask whether or not it's okay to read. There are a lot of people that we've bought pitches from, and this has gone on a series, who have absolutely read word for word. Off the top of my head, David Casp, who did Happy Endings and, and Marry Me for Us, admits at the very beginning, I'm really nervous right now, I'm going to read this whole thing. What he's reading is funny, he's a talented writer, and he, like Kat's saying, is if we're asking questions, able to answer anything, because he's pitching what he wants to say, he's pitching that Marry Me specifically was based on him and Casey and how they were engaged in their, their early stages of their marriage. So reading is completely fine as long as you know the, you, you still know the material and... and um, can answer the questions. And I think that's, you know, building on that, I think that's why you see a, so many of these semi-autobiographical shows on the air right now, because that's obviously not what's more passionate about than your own life. Totally. I mean, do you think that, you know, I mean, that's timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and you're living it, so it keeps going and going and going. So to your point about, you know, you kind of don't know where it's going to go. That's okay. That's okay. Like, you sort of have, a, have to have a vision, but I prefer it if you're living it and sort of writing it as you're experiencing it. Like, obviously, it's not going to be, it can be anecdotal or whatever. Like, you could put it doesn't have to be, you can put it, set it in Westeros. Like, that's fine, as long as it's personal for you. It's that age old, that is your write what you know, which yeah. is very true in TV, even yeah. in animation, which where you can go very heightened and big, obviously. But if you look at the, the classics, The Simpsons, it was based on Mac Raining's family. And South Park, that's where Trey Parker, uh, they, he grew up in Colorado. And then even King of the Hill, Mike Judge, local Texan, you know, those were the people he knew, and that's what he wrote about. And it works. I mean, shifting it a little bit, how do you know when a pitch is right for your network? I'll start it off because I, I don't have one network because I'm at a studio, so we're pitching. You know, Fox is the main buyer of animation for you know adult animation, their Sunday night block. But we'll also go to TBS. Uh, we've done deals with Comedy Central, IFC, um, MTV. We're, we're in the process of trying to do something with. So there are other outlets. Um, so we, when I'm buying, I'm really thinking, what's a great show that is broad enough that it can work anywhere? Um, which is tough because cable networks obviously want something that doesn't feel like a Fox show. Um, but then you have to think, all right, who is going to be the biggest buyer? Most of the time it's Fox. Um, so I usually wear that hat when I'm in a pitch. I sort of, all right, what is Fox going to say to this? What questions are they going to ask? What are they looking for? Um, but sometimes you have to take a shot and you know, gamble like, hey, if this doesn't work at Fox, this could be a great TBS show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't speak to, as a network, what we look for. So it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit murkier, I think, than what you guys probably have to look for. Yeah, and I think my, the reason I hesitate is just because, well, first of all, I could talk the entire time, so I want to give other people... <laughs> chances but yeah (laughs) but uh when you're at a broadcast network and i've been at two now you know a broadcast hit on fox should in my mind at least work on any other network modern family could work on any other networks it might not be exactly the same and i might be in the same place but um you know a broadcast hit should feel to a certain extent like a broadcast hit things are i know we're going to get it to at some point things are changing um rapidly right now so that's changing a little bit and they're having, you know, we're having to brand ourselves, and each each network has a little bit of a sub-brand of themselves, but we, so then what happens is, and you have to know whether or not you think it could be a broad hit, because eyeballs are still the way we, we make our money, um, but then it also becomes internally, it, can I get this past my bosses? Can I get, is this something they're going to respond to? What have they told me they like? What do they see doing in the drama world that they want to make the network? Um, and it's that sort of thing, knowing, you know, very early on, kind of, okay, this is, I like this in order to get it through my bosses, I have to do X, Y, or Z, or this is just not something that works here. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's a little different, I mean, I can't speak for Kathleen, but uh, just being on the premium side, you know, inherent in that is that the type of stuff that we're doing is just, just different. I mean, when there's no advertising, the cadence of storytelling is very different in terms of the act structures. Um, and even just the way that it builds, because again, you're not doing a procedural and you want something, at least for us, we do want things that are heavily serialized. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even most of the half hours that we've started getting into have some element of serialization to them as well. Um, so that's definitely something that you're looking for. And then, you know, I think it's an exciting time, at least for me, to be on the development side at STARS because the definition of what we're doing has been expanding a little bit, and I think, you know, it, it does kind of go back to what I was talking about of, you know, we don't have a really narrow perspective on 
what we will do, what we won't do. Obviously, we want to try to uh, have programming that's going to speak to a premium audience, but there's, you know, many different demographics, many different types of audiences within that. And, you know, certainly, you look at something like Outlander, um, which is that and White Queen, kind of the first times as a network that we had a primarily female audience for a show. That was a really exciting thing for us. Um, but, you know, that show is very different than Black Sales, it's very different than Power. Um, and I think that's kind of an exciting thing. It gives you the flexibility that, you know, if you can find a really great story, and again, something, a showrunner that has something to say, whether an arc or a theme, um, and can speak to an audience, that's, that's what you're really looking for. You know, how would you guys say that you know increased competition from the streaming side like Netflix and Amazon as well as all these new cable networks like WGN getting into original scripted stuff is really changing the buying process? And do you guys ever find yourself defensively buying? Yes. <laughs> I mean, we, we still want to win. Mm -hmm. um, it's much different now. When I started HBO, there, there weren't these. I was set there seven, started seven years ago. There, it was just such a different game. Yeah. Now it's like, what are there, 64 buyers or something like that? It's so great. It's a great time to be a writer, producer, director, piece of talent. Such a great time. It's a horrible time to be us. Because <laughs> you're like, like, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this pitch is HBO or I don't know if this idea is particularly going to work for us. And the agents are like, well, Netflix is giving us a 12, 12, ser 12 episode yeah. series order. And you're like, <gasps> but mm -hmm. I maybe want this. And how do we, what do we do? And it's much more competitive. And look, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. But I will tell you, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's, that's why I hesitate to answer the question before, because I'm like, oh, we're still figuring out what, what keeps us, you know, specific, like unique and branded in this marketplace where every, a lot of places are doing really good things. I think it's exciting, though, because I feel like, I don't know if you guys have had this as well, this may be total coincidence, but I like to think that uh, it's not that in like the past four or six months, you know, we've heard a lot of really great material, read a lot of really great scripts. Um, and I think it's because there is a lot of competition. Everyone, I mean, it's forcing everyone to really raise the bar because, you know, we hear a lot of great stuff. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you got to come in with, um, you know, whether it's a great package, a really great concept, a really great point of view, mm -hmm. um, something that's going to really compel uh, networks to, to get in there and bid against each other. Yep. I think there's two. The questions, in terms of buying defensively, it's, it, for us, that's, dangerous just because it's so expensive for us and we don't want to spend time, resources, money, or, or ruin a relationship with anything that we don't believe has a chance. Um, but I think what it can do is competition can gouge the price a little bit or make you spend a little bit more than you want to. Um, because, you know, it is still, at least the way we do things, there's a lot of chance still involved. I mean, we hear four or 500 pitches a year. We buy 60 to 80 projects, 10 pilots, 10 to 14 pilots, and pick up a few series. So the odds are slim, but... Um, if, if we, you know, if we want to buy something, but don't want it to go somewhere else, or if we really think we want it, but know somebody else is in, in uh, interested as well, it may go from being a script commitment to a script commitment with a penalty, or a pilot commitment, or in some cases episode commitments, which then take up a slot in the fall. And and for us, uh, that that can be dangerous because, again, we're broadcast and anything can, can kind of work. And when you're committing 12 episodes to something, uh, it, it you kind of, you know, you're, you're stuck with it, um, good or bad. Mm -hmm. And you're stuck with it on our timeline as well. And that's the other thing is we don't, you know, we've got a premiere in the fall to a certain extent. And we have to, to do things along that, that old timeline. So um, it, it makes it a little bit dangerous. I mean, building on that, do you think that straight-to-series commitments, I mean, we've seen so many. I mean, it's cool the, last year, but the year before it was out of control. Um, do you think that that helps or hurt the development process, and does that ultimately hurt the finished product? Because you don't really take the time to develop script notes and pilot screenings and testing and all that stuff. I, th I, th I think I can answer this question by saying it's different, and they'll give you a different answer. Because, And I have a sp specific perspective on this. I'm going to be careful now, knowing it's being recorded. <laughs> um, I think for, 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 for networking the way that we still do things, I personally don't like those large commitments because of the pressure it puts us under, knowing that we have to premiere at a certain time, knowing that we will have a little less insight into what's being done because they know they're on the air already, um, knowing that that's going to influence what else we pick up. If we, you know, if, uh, for example, if we picked up, you know, telenovela this year with Eva Longoria, you know, some of the pickups might be influenced on does this pair well with telenovela as opposed to is this the best show? And, and you know, not saying that that's what goes into it, went into it this year or any other year, but 
those are the kind of things that hurt us. And you've got Coach, which is straight to series with, I mean, granted, it's a a follow-up, but no script. Straight to series. Correct. Yeah. And that was a, yes. (laughs) Sorry. Can we we talk about the Michael J. Fox show? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Michael J. Fox. We've done it a a little while. We've been there for four years, and it's happened a lot. Um, I will say for... That actually kind of ties in a little bit to, um, uh, w- without giving too much away, it goes into a little bit of the, one of the previous questions, which is, that's our own studio coach. They own the rights to it. They pitched it to us, and they basically pitch us everything first. If they pitch us something that my bosses like, and I wasn't personally in that pitch, so I don't know how, how great it was. Um, if they pitch us something we like, the studio, because they're trying to make themselves an independent studio and sell to CBS and sell to ABC has the right to say, we're glad you like it, but we're not going to give a package this good in their mind up for just a script. You need to give us something so that I can call CBS, ABC, and Fox and say, we're not pitching it to you. And then it becomes a bigger commitment, and sometimes it's 12 episodes. Now, my boss could also you know, love Coach. It could have been the best pitch in the world, and that is a shot. I understand why that might be a shot we're taking. But that's you know, a little bit of a com- combination of you know, how competition can gouge prices a little bit, and how we are now prior to this development season, kind of we have a 12-episode order of something on the air before we haven't even heard any pitches this year. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a way to stay competitive. Um, I think, you know, in my time at Stars, I've been there almost exactly five years. and In that time, we haven't done a pilot yet. Um, everything has been a straight to serious commitment. And I think that's, you know, I mean, certainly, yes, it's a way to stay competitive. But one thing that I know that we found is that it can be a really, there's a lot of benefits of going straight to series. And I think we found different ways of kind of attacking the development process um, in a way that's really worked well for us. But I think part of what we found is that you need to be a little specific to the show about what it needs. There's not going to be any one template that works. You have to be really bespoke about it um, because what one show needs is not going to be what another show needs. So there certainly are times when you know we've heard a pitch or gotten a script, and then you know pull together a writers' room in advance of a green light, um, and then you know go through a process of doing a, you know looking at production plan and a budget, and then tackling any other questions that we might have about the series, um, and you know kind of pulling in all that information, and then based on that decide to go straight forward. Um, you know, in, in in other cases, you you know the like the one percent or blunt talk. Um, yeah, Blunt Talk being with Jonathan Ames, Patrick Stewart in the lead, and uh, Seth MacFarlane producing. You know, they came in, they had kind of everything ready to go, so it was um, less in need of a full development process leading up to it. So it was easy to you know make it actually a two season commitment on that out the gate. And you know, again, this is all building on everything here, but you know, everything's coming packaging. You know, it's becoming such the norm. True Detective came packaged. Blunt Talk. Um, producers, talent, directors, all attached. Does that make the process more easier or challenging for for all of you? I mean, again, I think it's do you it's like just when you get different? everything? Packaged? Yeah, it's it's totally different. I mean, we uh, for every project, there are certain projects where it's absolutely the right thing, like the one percent um, coming in with a script ready to go. Ed Helms, Hillary Swank attached, uh, Alejandro in your Alex, Nico, Armando, the guys that all wrote Birdman with him. Um, and they had a fantastic pitch, a fantastic script. I mean, it was it was ready to go, and that was what was right for that project. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, something that we recently put in development is a young writer who she just had a very specific vision. Again, something kind of almost autobiographical, um, something she really knows well with a couple producers that we really like. And so, you know, we're developing um, the script on that. But you know, so it's it's just it's totally different. And I think you kind of have to see for each project does this feel like the right team and the right package um, or not. Is that a, for HBO, is that a frustra- frustrating piece? I don't think so. I mean, I think, again, it's like it worked very well. For, we, you know, Nick Pizzolatto came in with Matthew and Woody, and you're like, yes, we, we will do that. Um, but Lena Dunham, for example, came in with nothing, and then it was it, there was something really satisfying about putting that together internally so and building the package from there. So I think it, you know, it works... It kind of works both ways. We have we certainly have to be open to it because it is the way things are going. People are bringing in these packages, and you can't just be like, you know what? No thanks. We don't want all you wonderful people in one room <laughs> together. You know, so you, I think we have to be open to it. I would say from a seller's perspective, because the studio we're buying and then going to sell it, you know, I think it definitely helps. And huge part of my job is finding that idea. And if it's a baby writer who maybe doesn't have the power to get into a network, you need to go find that showrunner. You need to go find that big piece of talent to make it irresistible because it's it's very hard to sell. 
Um, and so you need to make sure there's no little thread or any reason for a network to say no. And right. one way to do that is to make it a super package deal where every piece is perfect. And they can say, we want them, we want them, they're great, they're new, let's do it. Yeah, especially to your earlier point about knowing what we're getting, there is something lovely about you have this young writer who are, we, are all, we call, all can be really excited about, but then the search for that showrunner person who is so crucial to the process, um, if that comes in already, like, great, thank you. And what was a, the pitch with Lena like? Was that a pitch or was it a spec? Lena was not a pitch nor a spec. It was, she came in for a general meeting, um, and she, yeah, she came in for a general meeting, which is, I mean, seems silly, but we had a general meeting. We were talking about boys and heartbreak and Facebook, and and it was I was a new I was a new executive, and she was obviously twenty two years old or something crazy. And I was like, you know, it would be really fun. We should write a script together. And um, I thought that she would just write a script and it would be used for a sample, and she can go staff on something else. And that's became girls. It was like so not a typical process at all. And then as she was writing, we determined she needed a supervisor. Jenny Connor was someone we all knew and loved and like, it just sort of like rolled into it. But that was that's a very specific case where like something came out of a general meeting. Although they, general meetings are my favorite for that very reason. The, <laughs> it's true like you I ask very, very inappropriate questions. I don't know like how other people do their general meetings, but I like dig in cuz those are the stories, right? Mm -hmm. So she was just like expounding on her life and I was, she's amazing in person and fascinating and I was like this would be fun and it's no stakes you're 22 whatever and, <laughs> and then became So how do you get in the door for a general? So how do you get in for in the door for a general? All different ways. It Did is she, she had done tiny furniture. So I'd seen tiny furniture and and she and she was working with she was working with an agency. I came from UTA and she was she represented at UTA and so she was working with a friend of mine, so it was like sort of that. It is, I would say, heavily representation that gets you in the door. Um, though we do, you know, we specifically, I'm sure we all do, make an effort to be at the festivals and be, you know, reading everybody, you know, playwrights and, and we look, looking for web series and interesting voices. And but we're doing our own work, but typically it's typically it's your representation that gets you. In that does the initial introduction. I That's think, how it happened with her. I think it's at least animation. I think in live action too, there's a great tool out there called YouTube where you can put anything and it gets you noticed. It didn't exist 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but now I, all of my friends who are you know writers, creators, animators, they ask, well, how do I do it? What I was like, make something, create, go out there and do what you're good at. Put it online. Somebody will notice it if it's if it's good and it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Put it out there. It sounds daunting, but usually you know it will float to the top. The cream will float to the top and. I love getting links from either an agent or just from someone who's like, hey, I saw this, check it out. I'll check it out, and sometimes it takes me hours to track down the person, you know, clicking on their link to be like, what's, in, what's their email? And you email them and you find them. There's, there's all sorts of ways to put yourself out there now, thanks to technology, so absolutely go for it. If you're just a writer, keep writing. Maybe go shoot something. Even if it's a minute, get it online somewhere. <clears throat> You know, to that point too. You know, HBO just picked up um, a YouTube show, uh, a comedy, the, the Goreburger Show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the challenges associated with developing stuff that's based on existing digital fare? Like, and is that a, a trend that we're going to see continue? Can I throw this to you? Do you guys know? Um, we, I'm trying to think if we've ever pulled something directly from, you know, digital, a digital world, and tried to develop. I'm sure we've tried to develop stuff. But usually, it's not exactly what we've seen. It's you find a creator that way and then come up with a new idea to try to find, all right, let's do this. You know, David and I actually worked for a couple years on something that was called uh, Incubation that was sort of a joint deal between the Fox Network and the studio where we'd find these great creators, most of them online, honestly, mm -hmm. um, and then do and pay, pay them a little bit of money to go make us something new, something original. I think, I, I think you're only going to see more of it for, for a lot of different reasons. It's out there a lot more. But, yeah, that's what we, I mean, in essence, Part of the reason we uh, had put together was when Kevin Riley came in to Fox and he kind of looked at the animation slate and said, well, I want to pump this up. You know, we keep renewing King of the Hill, which is a good show, but there's not, been nothing new. And we just kind of racked our brains. And I, I, my, my sister's an animator and I had known a lot about it, so I knew that Matt Grain, the, the Simpsons started as, you know, Life is Hell and then as interstitials on Tracy Ullman. And uh, Seth MacFarlane's RISD thesis was the thing that somebody saw and turned into Family Guy, which you can find online. And, you know, I think I, I literally remember having a VHS tape of the South Park video Christmas card that I ran to my friend's house, put in a VHS. We were laughing hysterically. And that's kind of what, you know, it was like early days of the Internet where we were just kind of passing it around, dubbing it, showing it to friends. And I think we are absolutely doing more of that where we find 
stand-ups online, um, you know, uh, people who are doing short films, shooting stuff with their phone. It is happening. It's, it doesn't necessarily happen quickly, but um, it happens. I mean, I think, isn't the number one single from one of the Fast and Furious movies that, that there's a YouTube singer, a YouTube sensation who's singing on that, that song? I mean, that people are finding these, these people everywhere. So it's a little, you know, you're putting your stuff out there and you, you want to make sure it's yours and you're getting credit for it, but I think it's absolutely becoming more and more something we do on a, a regular basis. Yeah, and, you know, we keep talking about animation. You know, Grant, I, I really wonder why broadcasters, other than Fox, aren't taking a bigger risk. I mean, especially given <laughs> Thank you the status question. of current comedy. <laughs> got, I've got a buyer right here. <laughs> uh, it's a great question. You know, I've always, I, I've had the same question too, you know, aside from cable where, you know, the deals are a little different because they also like to own everything that they do uh, for many reasons. But you have NBC, ABC, CBS, which are all of them, even Fox, are turning more toward, you know, we want to own our own content. But you can still sell to other networks. And we used to pitch to NBC. We, we would pitch animated shows every now and then. I think you can speak more to it, but I think at one point they were considering it. You guys developed a couple of them. Um, but, you know, ABC, they tried the Good Family a few years ago. They struck out. I don't think that made them, you know, sort of, they weren't salivating for their next show after that. Um, same with NBC with Father of the Pride, you know, 10 years ago. I think it leaves a little bit of a sour taste because it takes longer to see anything. You really have to pick up a second season before you've seen how the show performs just to keep the wheels turning and to make sure that you're not just starting from scratch, which obviously costs a lot more money, more money when it comes down to it. Uh, but we would be completely open to selling to, you know, CBS doesn't seem like as relevant a buyer to us because it doesn't, you know, doesn't, wouldn't seem to fit. But they've done it, you know, 15 whatever years ago. I think it was called Capital Critters a show mm -hmm. that was, uh, oh, yeah. it, the first scene, it, it didn't work, I can tell you, the first scene was about mice, they're in their little farm, they live in a farmhouse, and the youngest mouse goes off to like, see the world, but he gets halfway away from the house, and he's like, oh, I forgot something, he goes back, and I'm paraphrasing here, he goes back, and an exterminator has come and killed his whole family. <laughs> this is an animated comedy. <laughs> and so he's like, so somehow he ends up <laughs> ends up going from there to living in the White House. He lives with a bunch of other you rats do. in the White House. And it was, it was a, I think it may have even been Stephen Bochco, actually. Because he had a deal where you know, they were said, here, make 10 shows, and he made this one. And um, that was, I, th I think they've developed stuff since that, but that may have been the last one that actually got on the air there. Yeah. yeah. I think, to, to, I mean, you touched upon it. I know I, one of the things I wanted to do when I left Fox to, to go over to NBC was to, to do something animated, but they're... It's the problem is it's it's fiscally very difficult because in addition to what he's saying about the schedule, um, it, it doesn't make any it doesn't make sense to uh, to to spend as much money as you have to spend for a pilot. You have to amortize the cost and kind of pick up series. So unless you make something short and then you're you know trying to pick up a series or something based on five ten minutes of animation that takes a year and people are you know trying to get things done very quickly. I mean from. We, when we picked up Bob's at the network, one of the only reasons, uh, among many other things we had to do and change and convince people, was um, the Seth MacFarlane shows were taking, I think it was 12 to 14 months from page yeah. to, to air, and, the, and they had to cut Bob's down. They had to prove they could do it in seven faster. months, seven, something, yeah, a lot faster. A longer, yeah. So it's hard, it's, it, it, it's hard financially to pick up series, pick up animation, and you have to do it so far in advance. And a lot of times at Broadcast Network, there's a little bit of a lack of strategy in what you're going to do that far in advance. And then you have the additional uh, hurdle of, well, even if we have this, what do we put it with? Because yeah. there's nothing on our Me schedule too. right now that lends itself to, yeah. to being next to an animated show. So I, I would love to. I still love animation. I, but it's, it's, it's just difficult on a lot of different levels. And, and they have that block, and they keep feeding it, which is great. I will say, David's right, Fox had The Simpsons to launch other animated shows out of. You have to find your Simpsons before you can do that. And, you know, I salute ABC for trying, The Good Family, and ABC for trying, Father of the Pride. Um, but it's hard. You do need, it's nice to have a nice pairing there, to have a block of animated comedy. It's really hard to let it live alone on its own, really for any type of show. You want to pair it with something that makes sense. Um, but if anybody would buy an animated show, it's this guy. I know that. <laughs> he loves animation. He's more responsible for Bob's Burgers getting on the air than really anybody. Uh, certainly more than me, but you guys keep watching NBC. Someday we're going to shove one down their throats. If, he would love it. I know that. He's got to convince his bosses. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, speaking of NBC, you know, and broadcast uh -oh. as a whole, but specifically NBC has had a really tough time mm. launching comedies. Really? Um, take... un, un, aside from Undateable. It's going to take a turn you right now, guys. Yeah. Zoom in. Yeah. My, my, my apologies. 
<laughs> I, I'm going to owe you some uh, brisket after this. What do you think the future of broadcast comedy looks like? It's a huge question. Um, it, it's, I mean, the, it, it's, it's such a, a big question that's hard to answer. I think for me... I, you know, I might be a little bit in the minority. I still think there's a lot of life in broadcast. I think as long as we have football and as long as, you know, not everybody has cable, there'll be people that are there watching. I think it's quite obvious that the people who are absolutely going to sample are, is diminishing, that that group is diminishing, and that's tough. Um, and, you know, we have to, broadcast has to change the way that we think about things, the way we do things, the way we produce things, the way we decide on things, the way we pay for things. Um, and because I think the audience is savvy, I think they know we're going to throw seven new shows up and kind of promote some of them. And you guys don't need to watch unless your friends say it's really good. And the problem is we yank them off the schedule before anybody has a chance to say whether they're really good, and we throw them on quickly. So I think the future of broadcast is that it's you know it's going to keep diminishing a little bit. But I think we just good isn't good enough anymore. We have to be really specific and better. And that's what cable does well. They know who they are, and but I think what gives me hope are things like Empire and things like Modern Family. There's, the eyeballs are still out there. Nobody's saying it's network. I'm absolutely not going to watch it. It's just we're not the only game in town anymore, so be better. And that's, that's, that's hard. Well said, David. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pick on you some more now. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, Undateable, you know, is obviously it's the big returning comedy for NBC, and it's shifting to an all-live format. We talked about this a little bit um, earlier today, mm-hmm. but... Um, how nervous are, were you when you were doing that East Coast, that first one? You know, I mean, there, I, I was, there was the big scene between uh, Scott Foley and Chris. I mean, he had. Chris I don't know how many knees. people out there saw it or whether it's still available online, but do, did you see the West Coast feed or the East Coast or both? I saw the West Coast and I didn't, I sadly missed the East Coast, but it's, it, I mean, I can't find the clip anywhere. In, in short, I don't know where it is, but in short, there's a scene where the scene is supposed to end with. Scott Foley making a joke that he can have people do things because his eyes are so beautiful, and the joke is supposed to be somebody doesn't believe him until he says, take me to the airport and then return my car. And he says, okay. And that in the East Coast feed, that's what happened. These guys on that show, and I love them to death, are all extremely talented performers, stand-ups, improv people. And without telling anybody, uh, in the second version, the, the problem, cut, cut back to I've seen every taping of this. Rarely, if ever, have they ever gotten through a scene at a taping without making a mistake. So this live thing was, oh boy, what's going to happen? <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden, Scott Foley starts improv. Of all the people, that starts, starts improving. <laughs> Instead of telling him to take him to the airport, he has Chris D'Elia get on his knees, uh, lean back. Uh, without being too specific and graphic, he's just making him do things, and Chris D'Elia has no idea what's going on. <laughs> and you can actually hear him say, I feel like this wasn't in the script. <laughs> and... If you listen close enough, he says cut at the end of the scene. So it, it was, to, to go back to your point, um, it, on the one hand, this is a tough subject for me because I, I really fought for Undateable Get Picked Up to begin with. It got put on the schedule in the summer, double pumped, which is usually a sign of a death. Um, I, I did a lot of meetings with the research department to say here's this retention is really good. People that know about this show are sticking around. It's not perfect, but it's something we'll want when we have a multi-block. It got picked up again, you know, a bit of a slash budget, mid-season, 10-episode short order, but it did get put after The Voice, and it had fairly good retention compared to other stuff that had been after The Voice. Not great, but, but, but good enough, in my mind, to give it life. But because comedy has been struggling on NBC, they're, they're, it, my bosses aren't exactly sure, or it doesn't feel like they're exactly sure what to do with it. This live episode was something that Bob has been trying to do. Bob Greenblatt, um, the chairman of our company, he did Peter Pan Live. He did Sound of Music. He, when he was at Fox, he did the second season of Rock, the sitcom Live. So it's something he, he has wanted to do, and we developed a couple of live sitcoms. When Bill Lawrence, the producer of, of Undateable, kind of said, hey, if you want to do a live episode, I'll do it. That, Bill Lawrence is gung-ho. We'll do, he's a TV lover. He will do whatever he can. Bless him. Um, Bob said, okay, great. And I think the timing was perfect where Bob went to the taping, was enjoying himself. The tapings went really well. The response for the live episode was great. And it lined up with when we were making our pickups. And, you know, he wanted to make a little noise and do something um, big. And when he floated the idea about doing an entire, you know, season of live episodes to Bill, 
to his credit, Bill's a great producer. He said, let's do it. Let's I'm, jump in. That was fun. I, you know, personally, and I'm on record in the company saying this, I wish we, you know, could just treat it like a regular sitcom. I think it changes a little. But that being said, I'm also the one within the walls saying we need to be bold. We need to change chances. We need to do things that are different. So I can't, you know, dismiss an idea like an entirely live sitcom with stand-up performers. So I'm excited to see what they do. Um, but I'm very nervous. <laughs> but it, but no it more worked. Scott Foley? Yeah. no. It, it worked, though. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. Scott Foley's little improv, you know, may have helped. Yeah, it 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 it, it worked. They had a little more time to prepare than they usually do, and uh, I, I hope they factor that in when we're doing the schedule and stuff. But um, yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. I mean, the the fact of the matter is, if you tune in for live stuff at, to to maybe see somebody mess up, this is the show to do it <laughs> because they will they will absolutely break, and uh, you'll see it. And so you know, it'll be fun. You know, speaking of Bill Lawrence, who is just terrific. Uh, you know, we're in, currently in the era of the mega showrunner. You know, you got the Chuck Lorre's, the Shonda Rhimes, Berlanti's got six shows next season. Um, <laughs> you know, how does the buy- the buying process differ when you're dealing with a mega producer? I mean, do they still have to pitch? Yeah, yeah, they do for us. Um, we, they, I mean, there Chuck has- Lorre doesn't just come in and say, "Here's I, well, what I want to do," and drop I mean, the buck. Yeah. When, when he does, like he doesn't, he hasn't. But um, if he did, we would obviously, like, fill the room with people and presume that it was going to be bought. But, you know, we still hope that they have... A, a, we still want their passion and their vision. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't just sort of say, like, do, you know, you go forth. Like, you, still our money, and, and especially at HBO, where real estate is so limited for original programming, it's like, yeah, we kind of have to know. We do have to know. I mean, they probably don't have to work quite as hard as someone new, but they're pros. So they shouldn't... I think it depends on the situation. I think, yeah, if we were trying to lure Chuck Lorre away from CBS, I think we'd probably have to make a giant commitment where he could just pop his head in and say, I'm doing a show, and we go, okay, bye. <laughs> but, um, but, but Bill Lawrence has a pot at Warner Brothers, and he pitches everywhere, so he, you know, we passed on him. We've, we picked up his stuff. So I think you do have to come in, um, but I'm not going to lie. When somebody like that comes in, you're leaning in a little farther because you know they can do it, and it's hard to do. It doesn't mean that's all. I know it looks like that's all we pick up, and I know some people lean on that he- more heavily than others, but um, it just makes you feel a little bit safer, like, okay, this guy can at totally. least keep the train Safety, on the tracks, yeah, or this girl knows what she's doing. I mean, given the network's reliance on on these mega producers, I mean, do you think that makes it harder for newcomers to cut through? I mean, there's so few shows on the air that are that are from first time writers or first time showrunners. Actually, we have a ton. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's you know, it to- again, it totally depends. Like Kathleen said, it's a great time to be out there pitching things, selling things. There's a lot of appetite for content, um, you know, and I think that you know. I, just because you're a first-time showrunner doesn't mean that you don't have experience necessarily. Certainly everyone that we've worked with um, maybe hasn't gotten a shot uh, at doing it on their own for the first time, but, you know, we saw something in them. They had a strong vision. They have a lot of experience being on other shows. Um, and, you know, so you, you, you roll the dice and, you know, really bet on those people um, when you believe in their passion and their vision. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot, the schedule, at least on the broadcast side, is really got so many remakes, reboots, follow-up sequels. Um, you know, do you think that that's a trend <laughs> oh, that's no, good here we go going? Again. And, <laughs> I mean, how much is that of that is just driven by the bottom line, and how much of it is driven by trying to cut through all of the clutter? I mean, there's like 200 and something, like 260 dramas on the air last year. That's so crazy. Yeah. That's, that's I, again, I... I, I just, let me... Put it through the filter so I don't get in trouble. I, 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 think, I think what it is, and it kind of dovetails with the question you're talking about, the, the, the big showrunners and how hard it is to cut through when you're a young writer. If you think about it in a crude way, when my bosses pick up a series, they are making 20, 30, 50 million dollar bets and yeah. in, in that investments, and that's scary, and they don't get to do it that often. So if you're going to do that with somebody who you have no idea whether or not they're capable or J.J. Abrams... I understand why people lean towards somebody like a JJ or somebody who's done it before, because then if it doesn't work with a lot, of, which a lot of shows don't, you know, you felt a little more comfortable knowing that they're capable of it. Um, I, I think we're all still, you know, somebody who found Lena when she was 22, like you know, Lauren Bouchard had been, you know, kind of doing some some cable series. Like I'm all for finding, you know, the next. Carter and Craig, who did How I Met Your Mother, or Seth MacFarlane before Family Guy. We'd love to do that. It is just very difficult. And I think when you talk about remakes, 
it what happens is it makes it in 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 some people's minds, not everybody, but in some people's minds, the marketing's a little bit easier. The awareness is higher because you already know what about a boy or coaches, and and the testing is a little bit better because people are comfortable a little bit quicker, and um, you know, there's known commodities, um, and you know what the brand is. I, I I think sometimes they can be good ideas. I think a lot of the times they may not be, and it and again, no matter what we're talking about here, it all comes down to the the execution and who's behind it and where yeah, you're going. I think it's probably similar to you know when we develop property books and and foreign formats and things like that. That's something you have a security blanket. You've seen, you know, kind of where it's going. You know who the people are. You know the, the tone. You kind of have an idea. So while it's a challenge to develop often, because sometimes you have to you want to make it your own thing and tell your own story, there's a security in that underlying property. So. Maybe it's like it's a kind of a similar. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I think you guys kind of touched on this a little bit, but I mean, something we saw with Avalander certainly, I mean, there's you know, millions of people who bought that <laughs> book and that book series. There's nine books now. So, you know, that's something that people, you come with an audience that's yeah, built like in that, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly, that like really want to see this thing brought to life, um, which is a great thing. They are um, the hardest, hardest audiences. Well, and that, that's so hard on you. That, yeah, you, you want, one misstep you need to get dead. it right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, I mean, that's a challenge, but I mean, it's kind of great. You know, that's, uh, you know, something you, you want to bring this to life. You want to do it right. You want to, you know, provide for the fans something that they're going to be happy with and proud of and really want to come back to every week. Um, so, it's, yeah, I think it's exciting. You know, and we're also seeing a lot of similar shows across multiple networks. You know, everyone wants their version of Homeland or True Detective um, how do you prevent copycat show, you know, making copycat shows while still capitalizing on the latest creative trend? Hmm. I think you, I don't know that you can prevent it. I think something I, you know, I've learned, I'm sure we've all learned in these jobs, is that there really isn't a new story. It's, there are always, like, new versions of stories we've all been told. So, you know, you can throw big worlds at it and special effects and all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, a basic core idea that we've heard before so I think it's just it's at your own spin I think just the idea that you're going to come up with something totally new is false like you're going it's and it's okay that's actually mm-hmm. fine and and um, so just putting your own take on an old idea is like you know it's sure there are similarities but I think if you can be unique enough in your in your own voice that'll that's yeah you're, you're you're I've said this to a ton of uh, of writers you're not reinventing the wheel you're just putting a different shade of paint on it. You're just yeah. It's a little bit different, and we all kind of forget a little bit, um, except for the people that I say it to way too often, is that it's sit- it, for us at least it's sitcom. It's situation comedy. It's a situation that we've been in that we've seen before with a different comedic spin. There's, you know, there might be an episode of you know, Roseanne where she has two you know, obligations on the same night and an episode of Ray and Seinfeld, and they're all going to be different episodes because of that comedic point of view and what they do. Um, I, I, I love True Detective, and I'm excited for the next season, but when, you boil, when I boil that down, y- you've got you know, two cops that don't get along, one that wants to be by the book, and the other one doesn't want to be by the book. They go to their, their sheriff, and they try to do something. He says, don't do it. They decide to go around his back. I mean, I feel like we've all kind of seen that before, but they did it no, in, an right. amazing, exactly right. in an amazing way. So it's just making sure that taking a step back and saying, is this copying something that's been done before, or is this just our take on something that's done before? It all comes down to the same thing of, it's the creator. You want to find that creator who has a voice. I always give the example of, in animation, if you look at the Simpsons and Family Guy on paper, they're the same show. It's a fat, drunk dad, a stay-at-home mom, and three kids. Mm -hmm. But because Seth MacFarlane's vision was so different, his voice was different, he had something to say, and he had a different way to say it, they're completely different shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think... Ultimately, is that's what we spend most of our jobs doing is trying to find that person who's going to take something that may be, you know, grounded enough mm-hmm. to be relatable, but completely put a new yeah. spin on it to and make it interesting. Audiences thrive on that relatability. They actually, you know, as you probably you love the stuff that feels like your life. You really mm-hmm. the things that you can you feel personal about are the things you love, right? Yeah, it's so such it's like a the, network the note, family, but yeah. it's for a reason. Yeah, it, mm-hmm, it, it's true. Uh, yeah. It's true. To the to the same extent, Blackish, which is another great show, you know, kind of a dumb dad, logical mom, little crazy kids. It's just it's a completely different show because they're saying something, yeah. and it's good. But I think it's also it's interesting. I don't know if you guys have this as well, but um, it's not even so much just looking at what's on the air, but there's this weird thing that happens for whatever reason where you'll all of a sudden, you've never heard, like I'll just give the example of Pirates. Like when we bought Black Sails, never heard a pirate pitch before then or after then. We heard like six in the span of two <laughs> Yeah, for us for, it was vampires. Yeah, just... 
bizarrely, yeah, everyone was thinking about it for some zombies reason. It big. just all came mm-hmm. in at the same time. And so, you know, I think it is then, when you're looking at that, I mean, on the surface, there may be similarities, but what is the point of view of the showrunner? What is the point of view of mm-hmm. what they want to talk about, what they want to say within that world uh, is really the important thing. And uh, we're going to open it up for questions now. If, uh, I don't know if there's a mic anywhere, but uh, in front. Yeah. I really hope so. <laughs> we still only program Sunday nights. So we have an hour at 9 and then two half hours at 10, 10.30. That's it. Mm-hmm. So it's that I would, one of your questions on the email was like, what's the most frustrating part for us? It's like we get all this great stuff coming in and we have nowhere to put it. And so I hope, you know, I, this, is, this hasn't been said and I'm probably speaking way out of school, and, um, but this HBO Now thing secretly feels very exciting to me because I'm like maybe someday we can program there and we haven't been told that or anything, but... I hope so, so much. It would be wonderful. I really hope. Uh, I'm curious, at what point you are no longer involved in the process of, of developing that show? I mean, being a part of that show. So in other words, how are you determined, how do they determine whether or not you're actually successful at your job? <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge question. If we had that answer. Oh my uh, God, that's uh, hilarious. All of it. <laughs> and that's why All when you get it. one thing, like, I will ride this Lena Dunham wave until literally <laughs> one thing on the air, you're like, see, I got that one thing, I got the one thing, remember the one thing I got on the air? Because there are so many more that you're, like, taking the hit for, yeah. I mean, if, you, if there's a hit on the air, there's probably 20 to 30 people out there who will take credit for it. Yes, but absolutely. For yeah. every bomb, which is 90, more than 90% of our business, it's, usually my fault. it's one person's fault. <laughs> and it's... Yeah, are, are you talking about in series a little bit too, or just in before it even gets onto the air? Be- well, in general, because you were talking, for example, that you know comedy doesn't do so well on NBC. Well, you're in charge of getting comedies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. Getting, you're, you're buying brisket later. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I completely, completely understand. I, I think. I, I don't know how I don't know how in um, I, I don't know how much people know here, but literally two days ago there was another restructure at my company for who I work for specifically and who I report to, um, because we, we see it too. Uh, and I personally think, again, without saying too much, I think we need to have a clear vision of what we want to do. I've been there for four years now, um, and I think it, it, we've. It's a little spaghetti against a wall, and 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 that's partially because nothing was working when we came in there. There was a Thursday night that a lot of people critically it was critically acclaimed, but it was not making money for the company, and they wanted to get away from that. But what we wanted to do wasn't entirely clear, and so you buy shows, and you know, like you're saying, it, you can buy shows from very talented people, and the pitches are amazing, and you get the script, and it's unfortunately just doesn't get there, and. Um, it is a little bit of a lottery. It's something that frustrates me about network, that when you don't have a brand, you're kind of trying to do a lot of stuff. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of voices, and, and uh, it's hard. There's so many variables, because if, if you get the people right, then you've got to get the idea right. You get the idea right, you've got to get the characters right. Characters, then you've got to cast it, cast it, direct it, shoot it, cut it. Right times, zeitgeist, marketing, where does it go? There's just a lot of ways for us uh, to, for it to not work out. So that's why... Yeah, exactly. If it all, yeah, I will take credit. Yeah, exactly. In the front. So broadcast companies, obviously. What are those? I'm just kidding. Good one. Yeah, with the Stamos one also. Yep. I think what it is, and, and I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who asked the last question or, or when we talked about what you hear, the pirates and what, whatnot. It's, what happens is every year we're done with our uh, pickups and things go to series, and we will have a couple months where we sit back and we go, what went right, what went wrong, what do we want to build on, what do we want to do, what's not on TV? And I think every having worked at Fox and knowing we did that, I'm sure ABC and CBS do that as well. 
everybody looks at the slate and they go, hey, there's not a lot of romantic comedies. And then the pitches that come in will be a lot of romantic comedies. And next thing you know, we have Marry Me, A to Z, and a, a bunch of other shows. And this year, you know, it's just, I think what it is is people trying to figure out what's not on TV because it gives them a little bit of a chance to, to uh, you know, to say, hey, this fills a, a, a void. Um, but it is, it's not a... Uh, I, it's not a conscious effort to say, hey, they're doing that and it works, we need to do it. I think what it is is everybody, we're broadcast and we want the same eyeballs that they have to a certain extent and we end up doing the same thing. So. Yeah, and we're seeing it the next fall. With, you got, everyone's got new medical dramas because Prince mm-hmm. Anatomy's getting a little long in the tooth, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Controversial, and obviously that would have a very different uh, notion between premium and broadcast. But like anything that just kind of like this is this could be a problem. Hmm. I think it's case specific a lot of times. You know, when I'm looking at stuff, I'm I'm checking for red flags for what are the networks who I'm selling to going to say? What's a red flag for them? And in the case of Fox, it's very high concepts of so superheroes, sci-fi. But I say that, and I tell writers that, and then I tell them to completely forget that because someday somebody is going to put that show on the air and it's going to be a huge hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to start as a creator, as a writer. Forget about the box. Make the show you want. There'll be a place for it. Um, and I don't want the show where someone's tailoring it for Fox because most of the time it will be very two-grounded, very milk toast, and you know just a family show with no heart um, and no original voice to it. So I feel like just go for it. Do the show. If it's crazy, you can always be reeled back in a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, so... Yes and no, each network is going to have a red flag. It's impossible to know. So that's why you just got to make something that you like. Yeah, I, I agree with what he said, but I would say, at least for Broadcast Network, we still are you know, selling ads, and there are, is an entire department of people that have to answer to those. So when we get pitches about you know, shows set in a marijuana dispensary or you know, some sort of sex store or something, it, it's, it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just HBO. different. As funny as it might be, unfortunately, that we know in advance we're going to have problems uh, down the line. So uh, those are the things you have to be careful of. We don't want to neuter anything, and we don't want to, to not take chances and make noise, especially with what we're saying. Um, I think, you know, the Carmichael's, uh, Carmichael show that's coming out this, this um, summer, I think it is, yeah. Um, he's specifically, Gerard, for anybody who knows his stand-up, he is a contrarian and goes against conventional wisdom, and that's what we love about him, and he's going to say some things that might irk some people. But um, as a whole, I think when you're thinking about doing a show here or there or what you're saying, for us at least, you've got to think a little bit about whether this is going to you know, upset the majority of sales or majority of America. Right. This, is, this will be our last question. No pressure. <laughs> um, what do you think about like your place in the current landscape of like shows being canceled on one network and going to another? Like because you're not on ABC and like CBS, and maybe trying to come to Fox or Hulu, Arrested Development, or Gawkers over here, Netflix. Like, do you rebuy the show as like as the show is completely new, or you look back and see, oh, it was like fairly you know successful or failing on one network, and skip over another? It's it's actually a very good question. I think it, I think it's great. Uh, we have shows like Futurama that can come back to life on another network and do very well on Comedy mm-hmm. Central. American Dad just went to TBS a year ago, and it is killing it for them there. And they love it. They love the show. It's a great partnership. So in, in essence of keeping a good show alive, I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of Mindy, it was a show that didn't do so well on a big broadcast network. We need to generate really high ratings to keep the advertisers happy. But on Hulu, they can get by with fewer viewers. And it's a very well critically like show for the most part and it has a very good core audience so they're betting that that core audience which is pretty big by Hulu standards if, if they get half of that they'll be very happy is my guess yeah, yeah I think it, go, it actually goes back to one of your first questions which is that, that changing landscape in the competition and it's a little it's, it's scary we're not, I'm not we're not afraid to say that we know things are changing and it's a little nerve wracking um, but it's frustrating that we're in a way kind of playing the same game by a different set of rules and I think we all need to realize that because like Grant was saying you know if if American Dad is hemorrhaging money because it's only getting two or three million viewers on a night where you need more but CBS can say I will take half of that and that's a success for us um, it makes it harder for us going oh well do we give somebody else a slot where they're going to take eyeballs away or do we do this and so um I think it's 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 just about knowing what your end game is, knowing what's a success for you, 
and figuring out whether it fits in there. And I think Arrested does for Netflix, and I think Mindy does for Hulu. And um, you know, it's it, it's part of everything that's changing and making it harder. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you, everybody, for coming out, and thanks to our panelists. Now leaving Nerdist.com.